welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown Podcast, where information is king, drinking is mandatory, and the beer is always flowing. Now, let's check in with your hosts and see what's on draft in this session. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown, session number 16. Now, I know this one's a little bit out of order because we just finished up session number 19 with Trogues Brewing, but there's a reason for that. Uh, session number 16 is actually one of my favorite podcasts to date. I got to speak with um, very well-known author Randy Mosher, uh, author of Radical Brewing, and a few other really great brewing books. Um, I got the chance to sit down with him uh, via a Google Plus Hangout, and we had a fair bit of technical difficulties through it. Uh, the podcast took a decent bit of editing so that you, the listener, gets to hear as few of those as possible. Uh, sat down with him, Amanda, the wonderful co-host of the show uh, for the first good bit of the shows, and uh, my very good friend Andy, who you would probably remember from session number 14 and my Better Home Brewing episode. Uh, we sat down, talked about Randy's new book that's coming out, uh, some of his old books, and one of my favorite topics, the history of brewing and how beer, alcohol, and brewing really relates to history and how they're very much tied together. Uh, Randy has some really great views on this topic and really, really knows what he's talking about is the best way to put it. So without me babbling on anymore, I apologize for a few of the audio errors that are in this. And you'll notice at the very end, he kind of drops out. Um, I'm going to poke back in. And when he does drop out, just to let you know that, you know, your speakers didn't die and he didn't just stop halfway through. But big thank you to Randy Mosher for taking the time to talk to me. A very busy man trying to get his newest book published. And enjoy the show. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Beer Showdown, episode number 16. Uh, today we are talking with uh, Randy Mosher, um, great author, uh, author of a ton of uh, brewing and beer books, just you know, an enormous wealth of information. Um, so, so much so that we had to add an entire extra co-host today. If you saw two episodes ago, you'll recognize Andy. Say hi, Andy. Hello. Uh, if you saw the last show or two shows ago, you'll know that Andy knows way more than I do when it comes to brewing. So, to make me look a little bit better, I figured he'd be on the show too. <laughs> Excellent. And as always, we have the lovely Amanda. Hello. Hi, Amanda. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> Good. What kind of beer you got tonight, Amanda? Um, I was just drinking some coffee, and then I decided to de-wimp, and I opened uh, Modus Operandi from Ska Brewing, so I'll be Ooh. sipping on that tonight. Very nice. How about you, Andy? I am drinking a Full Pints Night of the Living Stout. It's their, I guess, fall seasonal, winter seasonal, uh, just uh, an American stout with Cascade hops, which is quite delicious, and this lovely roundabout brewing glass. Which is Steve Sloan's brewery. Yeah, that's the uh, they do that single hop, right? Yeah, single hop, just Cascade. I have the Heavy Seas Loose Cannon. Very good beer in the can, of course. Randy, you have a drink tonight, or are you doing drink free? You know, um, we spent so much time diddle daddling around with the computer that I forgot to get a beer. Oh. I was out at I was out at I was out at GABF last week. Lucky. So I have to say my beer lust is somewhat dissipated this week. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I judge. You know, so oh. by the time you walk out at five o'clock you've had already sixty beers. Yeah. So it's kind of a workout, so 
What category the week after is kind of a low-key week as far as beer. We had a beer event also last night for the brewery I'm involved with. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, what, uh, what were you judging? Oh, let's see. I did a Pro-Am, which is great. You know, the that's the the beers that are homebrews that win a competition that get brewed by professional brewers, and then they get entered. And those are always really interesting, and they're fun to judge because you have all styles together in one in one okay. category. So every round is like a best of show. Wow. And then I did a round of Vienna's, and I did uh, had a really a couple of great flights of fruit beer that was interesting, and a really interesting uh, couple of flights of indigenous beer, which are beers like maybe <coughs> excuse me kind of um, maybe beers that are like farmhouse beers from Sweden or they're beers inspired by ingredients in your neighborhood or there's a, it's sort of a wide definition a lot, includes a lot of different things also made for interesting discussion so, and you know I don't know what else did I do uh, uh, round of experimental so it was, it's a uh, you know I always get a fair amount of those kind of weird styles but also did a couple of flights of German hate bikes and, and and uh, you know they mix it up and put, try and put put you on lots of different things. So, no, that's uh, yeah. I imagine you could get burnt out pretty quickly. It's hard. I I don't. I have a hard time judging uh, like IPAs or stouts or things like that after you know a couple panels of those. Your mouth goes numb. And, Blow out your palate. Well, they they just start all start to taste the same yeah. to some extent. Beers like Hefeweizen, for example, or or lager, pale or like pilsners and stuff. Those categories are very particular about what the style is, and they're also very hard to brew. So in terms of judging them, even a tiny, small flaw stands out, whereas a bigger, stronger beer with a lot of hops in it, it it's harder to notice, you know, so so they're more difficult to judge. Mm-hmm. Plus the hops just after a while are kind of numb and tongue. Yeah. <laughs> That's why people like it, you know, put me out of my pain. Give <laughs> me <laughs> something better. <laughs> So, um, for anyone who might not know who uh, Randy is, and I'd hope if you're listening or watching this that you probably would, um, he is uh, a multiple book author of, uh, I think, some of the most informative books out there. Uh, my personal favorite, one I've gone through a little bit, Radical Brewing. Um, just amazing source of information, um, you know, I have to thank you, Randy, because you've made my brewing a little bit better by reading this thing. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. That's great. You know, writing is a lonely task. It's just you and the computer sitting in a room for weeks after week after week after week. And it's always great, you know, to hear that you're – I'm sure it's the same with your show, that people reach out and say that was a great show and thanks for doing it. So it's always nice to have that feedback. So, yeah. I yeah, I, I think a couple more people read your, uh, your books than my site right now. <laughs> Yeah, but it's you got to start somewhere, right? Exactly. Um, and the, the other big thing, other than being an author, of course, is your work at the Seaborn Institute of Technology. Uh, right. You know, which uh, you are you still doing that, by the way? I just did a class today on beer and food. Okay. Yeah. So um, I still do that. That probably for me is about a month, a year of time. So not a huge amount of what I do. I'm I am primarily a graphic designer designer and branding specialist and now doing more consulting on overall kind of brewery ideas and product naming and even now doing recipe development for for brands and have a part, partnership in in a brewery and, and maybe one more in the works. So I've got a lot of uh, 
rabbit? Five rabbit. Yeah. Yeah, it's Five Rabbit Cerveceria. We are a uh, Latin American brewery in Chicago area. I have a, a partner from Mexico and a partner from Costa Rica. And so we're trying to invent Latin American um, craft beer in Chicago, which has been a ton of fun. Yeah, that's a style you really don't hear about too often. In fact, I, really, I think it kind of is in the style right now. It there's bird. There are rapidly growing scenes in uh, places like Brazil and Colombia and Chile. Uh, Mexico's come a little late, but they're starting. Mexico's starting to happen now. So they're trying to discover it themselves. And of course, they're not only looking to as we did to the great beers of Europe, but now they're looking at North America as a model for what they're doing. Right. So every time I go to Brazil, they're like, "Randy, what do we do? How do we get where you have? Where, how do we get where you are? You know, tell us what to do. We'll do what it takes. Just tell us. You know, we want to we want to have beer culture down here. So uh, they're working really hard at it. So that's it's, fantastic. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, Brazil's awesome too, by the way. If anybody ever says you want to come to Brazil, definitely say yes. Hmm. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think that's something we we kind of take for granted here is the. Uh, the, the beer culture that we have here, and we just kind of assume that everywhere else has it, too. Well, you young guys, you know, I mean, I don't want to give you the old man talk, but when I, I mean, <laughs> really, there wasn't, I mean, there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, because I was in it, uh, where there just was not good beer. You know, I mean, there, I mean, and when I started homebrewing, I got Michael Jackson's book, which was like, for most of us in my generation, that was like the big head trip explosion of amazement. We opened that book up and it's like, oh my God, look at what beer is. Because we didn't have any idea, right? And then, uh, so we, my friend and I who were brewing together, uh, we would get the Jackson book and open it up and say, ooh, Saison, that sounds kind of good. wonder what that tastes like. And then we would like cook up a recipe and brew it. And we did that with wit beer and Saison and triple and a bunch of beer styles because those were just not available at all in the U.S. So, um, you know, it's great to have this paradise now. Yeah. Pretty amazing beer everywhere. Hmm. Yeah, I, I almost, I'm almost kind of jealous of kind of that generation of, uh, you know, of homebrewers and beer fans because you really got to, you know, experiment with things that we just take for granted today. Well, you know, that's just the point of uh, taking stuff for granted is sort of up to everybody, right? It's, it's a choice, not a situation. So... You know, I think one of that's one of the reasons I find history so interesting, is that you dig into it a little bit and you always find things out about yourself, right? So, you know, I do a lot of work in beer history. It's kind of one of my, my hobby within a hobby, right? And uh, in fact, one of the books I have further down the road is is going to be a historical book. It's sort of like radical, but it's all history, and and kind of give you the a sense of what the beers were like and even how to brew them going back for ten thousand years. That's awesome. as much as I can. But but uh, you know, so it's important to have that perspective and it doesn't whether it's now or whether it was twenty five years ago, you know, it's really you just gotta kinda pay attention and see what the what the past is, what the future is. There's always stuff to be learned, there's always ideas to explore, you know. I think. Well no, I yeah. I mean I, I agree with you totally. So that actually brings me to one of the first things I want to talk to you about was um, so a couple of your books that I've I haven't read all these but um, you know like I've read uh, Radical Brewing but um, you know the ones I found on Amazon that seemed the most popular of yours were the Tasting Beer obviously the Radical Brewing uh, Brewer's Companion is, is great and that actually kind of you know transitions over to the 
your newest book that I wanted to talk to you about was uh, the uh, the Mastering Homebrew that's not even out yet. Look through some of the samples you sent me, and I am actually really excited to get this when it comes out. Uh, just from the, the couple pages you had, um, we were talking a little bit before you signed in today, and we were saying how it seems like all of the the books on how to brew that seem a little really thick and kind of poorly organized, your your newer book, this Mastering Homebrew, really seems like a really good graphical, kind of simple laid out way to give an enormous amount of information to people so that, you know, people that might just be starting with homebrewing don't have to get a dumbed down version. Uh, it really looks like they can take the full amount of the information in and just use what they want to and kind of catalog the rest for later when they get better. So we all, you know, we all start homebrewing at a certain level with, with our own level of, like, cooking experience or technical experience or whatever it is, and, uh, you know, it's, the, the books just kind of help you, you know, you, you pay attention that, like, if you're really into yeast, you pay attention to the yeast, if you're really into the recipes, you pay, so eventually, over time, <coughs> excuse me, you fill in that knowledge and think about, you know, get to the point where they think, well, maybe I really should know more about hops. So you, you know, figure out hops. And, if, and in the end, if you master all of it, it makes some pretty damn beer, good beer. You know, and beer's one of those things that's, a, you know, like any art, you got to really know all the everything before you get really great at it. You can't leave any one thing out. So in the book, I've tried to, you know, one of the things, John Palmer's book is really great. I'm sure you've had him on the show. Uh, and I did the edit on that book, the technical or the uh, conceptual edit on it. And it's a great book, but it does, he, John is really not a recipe guy. So in the end, the recipes in there are fairly simple, and he doesn't spend a lot of time in terms of how to think about recipes. That's my strong suit, because I've spent an entire career as an artist, and you know, for me, recipes and beer is just one more form of art that I practice. And so I bring my tools of art to putting recipes together. So there's a lot of talk in the book about you know how to create contrast and dy dynamism and and layering and and uh, having a clear idea and having a hierarchy of flavors and all of these things that that if you if you do music or you do painting or you do graphic design or any kind of art you you're always kind of working on the same principles of harmony and rhythm and contrast and and so in beer it has a certain specificity you know to of, of things that you need to be thinking about but the, but the principles are the same and then giving people the tools to think about how to uh, put a recipe together kind of a, from a flavor standpoint out rather than a style standpoint in. You know, Ray, Ray Daniels' book is also is the other great classic, and Ray's a super good friend of mine, <coughs> and I like his book, but it's very oriented around styles because at, at the time he wrote it, Ray was a huge competition entering guy. <coughs> Sorry, I'm coming off a cold here. But so Ray, um, Ray, Ray wrote that book with the idea of how to make your beers fit into those competition slots, and that's a very valuable thing for a lot of people. But it's not what everybody wants to do. And I think also, if you if you focus too much on the styles, then you tend to do the styles the way they're traditional, and it and it doesn't give you full command of how to really make the flavors the way you want. So if you if you think about one of those charts I sent you was that one that kind of broke down a glass of beer into flavor blocks and to think about your base malt <coughs> your base malt block, a flavor malt block, 
a, a color adjusting malt block and a adjunct block. And within each one of those blocks, you may have multiple elements, but it helps organize your thinking rather than just like tossing the, tossing malts onto a grain bill and ended up with 12 things that you don't. <coughs> I'm sorry that you don't know like why they're all there, you know. So I'm trying to give people tools to to be more structured conceptually about their recipes and really dig into it. And and a, there's a huge chapter on ingredients too. That's the other big chapter that I think you know it's obvious really. Uh, but I don't think people pay enough attention to the flavors of the ingredients and why they're there and what implications that has for the beer. So I think those are the two things that I think is going to make this book different from all the other good books that are out there. Yeah, and I agree with you totally. And one of the things that really amazes me when I brew with somebody that really knows what they're doing um, is the ability to just toss a recipe together by knowing what all of these ingredients are. Um, in fact, uh, it was about six-ish months ago, Andy, that we brewed together. Um, it was the same idea. Just watching you toss that recipe together and go was it's interesting. Once you get to that level, you kind of you know, have that understanding of the fundamentals behind it. You can kind of throw things as you as you go and kind of improv, just like you would when you're cooking, and you can end up with something that's very style-specific. And, you know, reading the charts and the, the guides that Randy has in his book, it definitely really helps you kind of put that thought process together and what's behind it. So you can easily do that on your own. You don't have to brew 200 batches to get to that point. You can look at the book, get a reference, and go from there. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that as you, as you get more experience as a brewer and you get more familiar with the flavors of, of the beer and the ingredients, you get to the point where you can kind of build a virtual beer in your head, right? So you really have that ability to look at, to look at a list of malts and say, oh, yeah, Crystal 40, that's got that kind of deep caramelly, like golden raisin kind of flavor. If I put that beer, if I put that in my, in my IPA, it's going to have this nice kind of sweet caramely kind of edge and and then you know you layer on all the ingredients and you build that picture up in your head about what it's going to taste like and also it, the flip side of that is the tasting side that if you once you really know your ingredients and your processes if you taste a beer you can brew that beer right because you know oh yeah that's that's a dark caramel it's got that like burnt burnt prune flavor or whatever it happens to be and you can kind of uh, but that's kind of where everybody ought to get to eventually that's the goal it's hard, you know, takes, that takes some time, both of those things. But that's why tasting is so important. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's in this book, and there were probably a few of them in the pages that I sent, was that I sent emails out to Charlie Papazian and Ray Daniels and John Palmer and, like, everybody I knew that I thought was doing interesting work and said, I, I gave them some, some general questions and then some real specific questions. And one thing everybody came back to, almost everybody said, you want to be a good brewer? Learn to be a good taster. Right? It's, it's not your technical knowledge that's necessarily the limiter. It's your ability to discern what's good and what's not good and to taste those fine details and off flavors and good flavors and whatever else. So, so definitely you know, becoming a taster, that's a super important thing. And that's not, you know, taking on that, that's not just for home brewers. I mean, that could be for anybody, you know, that does this at all. If you go to a bar, you know, you can learn to pick these things out yourself. Uh, I'm in sales. My weakest link is that I don't do a lot of home brewing. So it has taken yeah. me a long time to pick up on different kind of hops and malts. And so my weak yeah. link, sometimes I'm unable to express a flavor to a, a customer, you know. So yeah. I totally get this, and this is definitely something that I want to work on. So... 
Yeah, well, you know, I give a lot of these Siebel presentations to distributors, yeah, and to yeah. beer distributors, and I sit in front of a room full of Budweiser distributors in Beaumont, Texas, and say, you guys should all be homebrew judges, mm -hmm. and they sort of laugh, and it's like, no, I'm actually serious about that. If you guys, if you want to know what beer tastes like, and you really want to know beer, you want to become a beer expert, you can't just read a book, mm -hmm. you can't just hang out with your friends and taste beer, you can't even sit at the kitchen table and taste beer, you really need to go and sit down and judge. Mm -hmm. and train yourself and judge and understand how to accurately uh, match a beer to a style guideline and under, and know what those you know flaws flawed flavors are and train yourself and figure out that maybe you are not that all, all that sensitive to the diacetyl but you're a super taster for DMS or whatever you know what because we're all a little different and calibration is important so you know that's you can't do that from casual taste those are the kinds of things that only come from sitting down with a score sheet with two other people looking at you that may know more than you, which is also great pressure to learn, uh, you know, so. Andy, do you still uh, do you still do judging at all, or have you done judging? Oh, yeah, all, all the time. I mean, anytime there, there's any competition that I can get my hands on, I, I judge. The most recent was Beer and Sweat in, uh, in Cincinnati. Like Ray had mentioned, you know, the first time that I had ever judged I judge with Gordon Strong. Um, I don't think there's more of a daunting person that you could judge with than the highest ranking judge in all of homebrew, at least. And it was it was the best learning experience that I could ever ask for because you know I never judged beer before. I thought I was an expert. I was a homebrewer. But you know when you sit next to someone that has a palate like that and you're judging something against a very specific guideline that it needs to meet, you say, well, I taste this and I scored it like this because of that. I kind of got a better perception of what my palate actually was in comparison to his, and he's exactly right. I mean, it's the best thing you can do is get with someone that knows more than you, sit down and really judge a beer as it's supposed to be judged against guidelines, and that's what's going to make your palate evolve. So you know when you taste diacetyl or you taste acetaldehyde or whatever the flavor may be, you know that that is that flavor, and that's where you know a problem may lie or that might be appropriate for that set style. Yeah. And you, I never get up. I never get up from a judging table without learning something. Mm -hmm. Exactly. new. I mean, just amazing. And you know what? I mean, I can agree with that totally. Even you know, doing some of my my beer samplings and even just kind of talking to people at the bar. You know, if you they'll taste something and then I'll point out a taste to them, and it's like they, you know, after they hear it, they can totally taste it. And if you describe how it should, you know, how that taste comes out, good or bad. Sure. It's kind of like that opens up a whole other world for him. So, well, yeah. you know the the thing is, everybody struggles with vocabulary. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Everybody struggles with vocabulary, and you know why that is, because our brains create emotion out of aroma, not words. Mm -hmm. Right. If you look at the way our brains are actually wired, all that sensory input from our nose goes deep into our emotional right. emotional centers, into places, uh, memories of place memories of emotion deep inside in those little lizard parts of your brain and your head. And that's a long way from our language center, which is in the cortex, you know, kind of back here. Mm -hmm. It's 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 hard. You have to you have to almost in order to get to words, you have to learn how to linger in those little emotional impressions like all of a sudden you're at grandma's house or whatever it happens to be, or a candy store and think about, okay, I'm in a candy store. Well what am I really smelling? Is it a wheat beer? Might be banana runs, right? Because that's you know banana candy. Because that's that isoamylacetate. That's an ester. You're going to find it in wheat beer. Boom. 
there you go. You know, so so having those impressions and sometimes even just learning how to not edit yourself because like why would I say but why would I say that you know but but just blurt it out just say it, it and then then figure it out later and quite often it's like yeah that's it you know so so that's part of tasting that's a little technique you know knowing that that we're wired into the emotion like that and into those especially into those emotional place memories that <coughs> gives you the <coughs> gives you the ability to linger there and kind of retrieve a word sometimes so it's a little technique that that people use to help help with that language thing. but that's a hard part for sure and that was actually one one part in the uh, uh, the book sample you sent us is the all the vocabulary on good and bad descriptors. Yeah, I thought that was hugely helpful in of itself. Yeah, well, you know, we've had that musty old uh, uh, Morton Mildgard uh, beer flavor wheel for quite a while, and that was I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, it uh, was a uh, a flavor wheel developed in the uh, 1970s by people who were working in the big brewing industry. It's good for as far as it goes, but it's uh, not encompassing enough for craft beer. So I just tried to get all the flavors and aromas and textures and even conceptual qualities on one page or a spread so that people would have them all there together. Because so, uh, having a little cheat sheet on, on flavors is pretty helpful for people. No, I, I agree totally. And I think that more craft beer bars and craft beer-centric places need to give their employees something like that so that they can actually see it, start yeah. to describe the things they're tasting better. So, yeah, it's uh, language, you know, really important. So, in, in talking about, you know, homebrewing and making your recipes and everything, do you, uh, you still homebrew on a regular basis? I do not. We've moved all my homebrewing equipment down to the production brewery on the south side, so uh, I'm brewing down there. So, more and more, you know, I'm really kind of uh, transitioning out of being a homebrewer. The mindset's all the same. And that, but now I get to drink drink my own beer. But now I've got somebody else that brews it for me. So, well, that's nice. Kind of ever, I don't know if it's every homebrewer's dream, but I like it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I just got I just found that I with everything else that I'm doing, I just didn't have time for it. So, um, you know, I, I'm having a ton of fun working on recipes with people, and, and uh, we we took my uh, louder ton that I built and uh, all my pumps and all that other stuff and combined it with some brew on premise equipment that came out of a, a, a brew-on-premise place in northern Kentucky, and so we have four 25-gallon steam-jacketed uh, uh, copper kettles that are like Ferraris of homebrew kettles, because you can boil 12 gallons of water, in, uh, or 25 gallons of water in about 12 minutes wow. in those little kettles. So we could turn out about a, bar a barrel of beer on that system. So it's been kind of fun to get that, get that fired up and uh, play with that. Wow, that's... Yeah, it's pretty good. I really do wish, uh, I mean, I, I guess every homebrewer wishes that they could take that leap and start doing that. Um, I know Andy's hoped that once or twice. Yes, quite a few times. It's all, all I think about and all I want to do. Someday. If you have $178,000 laying around, you know, send me a, a message on Twitter. Maybe we can make some things happen. <laughs> Only 178 That's pretty cheap. It's going to cost more. It always costs more. Yeah, it always does. <laughs> well, when you were brewing, uh, Randy, did you have a? You know, I know everyone hates the question of what beer do you like the most, but what uh, did you have a favorite style you like to brew? You know, I really brewed a lot of Belgians. I brewed a lot of wheat beers. If I were to open my own brewery, 
just me, and I don't think I ever will because I always, I have a lot of other interesting things on the table. But if it was just me, I would brew Belgian style wheat beers. Period. Oh really? I think they're magical, and and with beer in particular is the style that I really focus on. I think they're really they're they're fascinating. They are like most Belgian beers, Abbey beers, Trappist beers, triples, stuff like that. Those are 20th century beers. They have very little to do with Belgian brewing history. Those beers are inspired by England and Germany and Scotland and elsewhere. But with beer, and and lambic is the the, the demented cousin of with beer because it's basically the same brewing process or more or less the same. And obviously, very different fermentation. But the beers, before they start fermenting, are pretty much the same. And I think you know, there's something just really magical. I like the historic things, and I, to me, it's one of the most lovely beers there is to drink because they're they're uh, low in alcohol, immensely complex and satisfying. They're hard to brew because it's hard to get that texture just right. And if you're using unmalted grain, that takes some special techniques. And coriander is a challenge because a lot of it is really tasty, like horrible selling seed cilantro and not good and people don't seem to pay attention to that. Orange peel's difficult. Uh, you gotta get good, good orange peel and get the balance right and get that like fruitiness in there. Yeast is tough. And it's just like really subtle hard beer to brew. And then once you brew it, it's best when it's two weeks old. And every week <laughs> after it's not quite as good. So it's like a beer that's just best when it's super, super fresh and creamy and delicious and <laughs> It's a wonder if a beer I like it. I like a lot of different beers, but that one for me is kind of a special beer. Yeah, I find I I really like asking people more what you like to brew instead of what you like to drink because I know at least like me, it I change like week to week what style yeah. I like, but you know what I like to brew kind of tends to stay the same. Um, yeah. So, and you kind of mentioned this before, Randy, but the, the history that you put in your books, like in uh, Radical Brewing, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the part I like the most. So, what, uh, what kind of drew you to the, you know, the, the deep history in brewing? Because uh, it's not really something a lot of people tend to cover. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? Like, how do, I, how do you do it, or what? Well, what, uh, what got you really interested in the history behind brewing? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I just... You know, I'm a person that has a lot of different interests, and and I really have always enjoyed history <laughs> in some form or another. I think you know, and it really, honestly, you can't you can't study beer styles without studying history, because as I say in 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 tasting beer, like what is porter? You, you cannot say there is one thing called porter in one place. In one time, there is a thing called porter, but but it it, it defies um, putting it into categories. And even the modern styles of categories that we have in the BJCP and the World Beer Cup, you know, there's a mild or brown porter and then that robust porter. And I, I asked Charlie Capazian one time, he's like, where did you guys come up? How'd you come up with that? And he goes, well, me and Michael Jackson were talking, and we just thought there ought to be two porters. So we kind of cooked it up and like we like one one should be lighter and kind of brown and we'll call that brown or mild porter and and the other one should be bigger and darker and more stout like and the, and because the, there wasn't any porter being brewed in in England at the time and the only real porter was up in the Baltic and nobody in America had ever tasted that so it was like yeah let's make up porter and so now we have that enshrined in these guidelines and people are brewing to be these authentic porters that sort of 
were just sort of made up by a couple of guys. Orange authentic, yeah. Knowledge, but it was uh, somewhat arbitrary. Right? So, I mean, they kind of had to do it at the time, but, you, you know, so you look, you study the history of Porter, like, okay, let's look up Porter. Well, you know, it was one thing. Uh, in its early days, it was brewed from a brown malt. As, as soon as they figured out how to make a hydrometer, they were just totally shocked at how little extract they were getting for their money. <laughs> <laughs> because they were buying by volume and they were using this like puffed up malt and it had a great flavor but this guy named Richardson in the 1780s published a book with the hydrometer and like all of a sudden all the brewery accountants are no 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 we're not going to do that we've got to change malt so all of a sudden now Porter's being brewed with pale malt and that's a problem obviously because pale malt is pale and Porter's dark so how do you get the color then they had to figure out well let's make some color with licorice or, or this, they made this caramel syrup that they made by boiling down sugar or uh, um, extract in an iron pot until it uh, bubbled and turned black and then they set it on fire. And oh, that wow. material was used to color porter for a while. And then eventually a guy came along with a kiln, and, like invented a kiln and figured out how to make malt black without it having to be catching on fire. And, and then and then after that, you know, something else happened. Pale ale became popular. Porter eventually sort of went away or kind of turned into mild ale. And, and every generation. Sorry? I'm sorry. Have you ever tried to brew these kind of styles, like the way that they say they did it and just add I have some. I have it enough. I mean, I, one of the things I'm working on this, I, I, I will be working on this history book, and I'd love to brew some, some, some of these recipes. I, I've tasted some that people have brewed authentically. There are groups in England that are very history conscious that really do the research and do some of those old styles. So there's some recipes around. Uh, I do have a lot of old books and things like that. Uh, a lot of those recipes, by the time you get <coughs> into the late 1700s, the recipes are pretty coherent. You can actually look at them and think, yeah, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those are pretty fun. There's a lot of fascinating stuff out there. I mean, again, really... If you're ever out of ideas, just get a history book and just look at what the past. That's that's what radical is. That's why there's that big chapter in there. You know, some of that stuff is just loony. You know, there there's there's that there's the Gretzer style. It's 100% smoked wheat. That's um, you know, that's pretty cool. There's a bunch of Polish homebrewers that are uh, working on bringing that back in Poland. Uh, so that's been kind of cool uh, to do that. But I mean, you know, you sometimes. We have an idea of what's going to taste good, and if you look at these old recipes, sometimes you think, nah, this couldn't possibly work, and then you brew it, and then you realize those old guys knew something, and there's a whole different way of thinking about a beer than we would have. Now, that's another reason why the history stuff is great, because it gives you views into people's minds that we don't have anymore, you know, so when you brew them up, you're kind of like looking at these guys and the way they lived and the way they thought and what they thought was appropriate, and it's usually really valid. You know, it's different than us, but it's always good and interesting. So, we're very much worth doing. Hmm. Yeah, and that's I just I really love the the whole history part of this. So yeah, so the history thing I just love because I'm kind of a, a history nerd. So I, I honestly I think that was probably my favorite part of the whole book was the the parts where you know, it showed why you know why styles are the way they are and why we do things the way they are and just I think that's amazing. Like if you look back at it, you know styles were there not so much because somebody wanted to make a style, but because they wanted to you know they just wanted to brew beer and it just so happened that's the water they had and that's the the wild yeast they had. It just I just think it's amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and when you start really thinking about styles, it takes you on a journey 
not only of, into the agriculture and into the soil and into the particular plants they could grow, but into things like taxation. You know, probably that has a bigger effect on the way beers are in any given time and place than any other single factor. Because beers are always, ever since the very beginning of beer, uh, or at least our, our written records of it, it's been a tax product. There's a little bargain, a societal bargain that we, that we uh, will accept the penalty of a little tax to have a little alcohol, or maybe a lot of alcohol. But, uh, you know, so, so uh, and it, it, it really is like what you tax. It's not just how much you tax, it's what you tax. So if you tax hops, guess what happens? Beers aren't very hoppy. Uh, if you tax malt, if you tax alcohol, if you tax, like in Brazil, beer's based on the tax on the cost of production. So InBev can make beer for almost nothing, and they pay almost no tax on it. Whereas craft brewers, it's very expensive for them to make beer, and that price telegraphs up through the taxes and blows up their taxes. So you can buy a bottle of, you know, industrial beer in Brazil for a couple of bucks for a big bottle, and a craft beer might be twelve. Oh wow! And, so, and 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 in every country, you know, there's and then that changes historically, and everybody, you know, I mean, it's very complicated and really has a lot to do with. Because governments encourage people to brew certain beers, stronger, weaker, lighter, darker, whatever, you know, by their in impact on the tax system. They use that control. So, pretty fascinating. Which is kind of, you know, when you think of it that way, it's kind of interesting that there aren't more tax breaks for, you know, for doing, uh, you know, corn-based beers in the U.S. It seems like everything else corn-based gets a lot of extra money. I think the percentage of corn of the market of corn used in beer is pretty <coughs> pretty minimal compared to its use in animal feed or uh, ethanol yeah. or anything else like that, so or corn syrup production. So I don't think it would really make that much difference. But you know, in places like in uh, in in uh, Nigeria, for example, you cannot. You're not. It is illegal to import barley. Oh really? And they don't grow much of it there, if any. So they make beer out of millet. So when you buy Guinness. In Nigeria, it's a millet beer that Guinness ships drums of black goo from their St. James Gate brewery, and they mix that in with the, uh, uh, the sorghum beer that they brew in Africa because they're trying to encourage local ag agriculture, right? And 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 keep money at home rather than sending it abroad for for imported ingredients. So, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable policy. It, it ends up with kind of a strange beer, but you can understand how the government had a policy like that. It's that kind of stuff that completely unintended, you know, really like things that you wouldn't think. I mean, normally you think, yeah, it's the water and the malt and everything, but it's like all these other factors too. So important. Yeah, it, that, that is really interesting throughout history how much beer has been, or just not beer, but alcohol as a whole, has been controlled one way or the other. Um, so, uh, yeah, a little bit ago I mentioned the whole Siebel thing. Uh, how long have you taught at Siebel for? I think about uh, eight or nine years now. And what uh, what got you going there? Just uh, they called for something to do, or yeah, you know, I we had, I had done I had known the folks at Siebel for quite a while. I started prowling around in their library back in uh, the like in the early '90s and got to know them a little bit, and then uh, uh, did a little bit of advertising work for them, just kind of help them out because I could do that for them, and and uh, then. And brewing, and because Siebel had taught, a, you know, taught teaches a lot of technical stuff, but really had never taught people how to make beers in, in style. So 
so they thought that would be something that would be interesting to people. And of course, Ray had his book, and I had the home uh, the companion book at that time. And uh, I think Radical had just come out also, so we had a little bit of street cred for that. So we put the, a course together called the Master of Beer Styles course, and it's a three-day uh, um, styles-intensive course that also talks about recipe formulation, and uh, we sort of trade off unit for unit. And Ray does the uh, um, orthodox stuff of uh, Germany and England, and I do uh, Belgium and all the way. Crazy beers with weird ingredients and stuff. So it's a good, it's a good three days. We drink about a thousand dollars worth of beer. Wow. <laughs> you just, it's, fun you know, go, it's fun to go shopping at a beer store and fill two carts. So you just, um, you can get that at the bookstore, right? When you go to the school, you just go bring your little list, and they just give you all the beers in the bookstore. Yeah, right. That's how it works. No, there's a uh, enormous uh, liquor store right across the street. Or, well, Siebel's moving, but it used to be right across the street. Hmm. So Actually, Siebel's been fun. It's great. You know, again, I sit home, I work on my computer all day, so it's great to get up and grandstand in front of a bunch of people every few days, you know, every so often. gets me out and gets me up in front of people. It's a great balance to my uh, creative life. Yeah, just from the, the people I've talked to that have gone to Siebel, it just seems like it's, uh, you know... No matter how much you know, going there just seems to really enlighten and really, you know, add information and add knowledge that wasn't really there. Uh, last episode of the podcast, I actually talked with uh, the people that started up uh, South Southbound Brewing uh, in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, both of their brewers actually went to Siebel. Um, so yeah, I, awesome school. Wouldn't mind going there myself. Uh, I'm sure Andy would get a little more use out of it than I would. Probably. Yeah. We do a homebrewing course. We there have a homebrewing course it's, that's uh, myself and Ray Daniels and Chris uh, Chris White and Chris Graham from More Beer. And uh, it's a week in Chicago doing homebrewing. So what, a lot of times people are new to the industry that don't have any industry experience and want to maybe eventually be an industry brewer. They recommend taking that class first because we cover, you know, we cover all the technical stuff in a fair amount of detail. It's not uh, obviously a professional course, but um, some of the some of the material and organization of, of my new book is sort of you know based on having taught that homebrew class for several years now, and uh, just in terms of having a good linear flow of information. Really, if, if you ever want to write a book to, to teach people how to do stuff, teach it first. <laughs> you know, make a big giant PowerPoint. Outline and do that for a few times, and your book will be better. Well, speaking of that, um, so after writing books and teaching classes and you know doing as much talking as you've done, um, you know, is there a mistake that you see homebrewers do that is like the most common mistake, or something that they you know that you think that every brewer or homebrewer that you've kind of talked to could stand to improve? Uh yeah, two things, and they're related. I think um, people tend to make a lot of their decisions about their beers out of habit, <coughs> out of habit. And so we get in a habit, because so many of us start with extract and a bag of crystal oil, you know, that's the standard recipe uh, for a lot of people's homebrew. We get used to using crystal malt in every recipe, and that's really not a good idea. Uh, there's nothing wrong with caramel crystal malt, but it has a very specific range of flavors, 
And so if you you shouldn't automatically assume that you always need it, right? And that, and sort of that's the big and so the bigger picture is you need to really be deliberate that you really shouldn't ever just put something in because you always do it, right? Mm -hmm. Think about a pale ale recipe. Most people automatically, maybe partially because it's just historical, but automatically, well, I'm going to use pale ale malt. Okay, well, you can, and it certainly makes a fine IPA, but do you want that? Do you, you know, that has a really sharp kind of biting flavor uh, that is a little bit biscuity, and maybe, <coughs> sorry, maybe you want that character in your IPA, but maybe you want it, maybe you, maybe it would be a, a better IPA or a more different IPA if you used a little Vienna for that instead of that. Maybe some pills and some Vienna, maybe a little bit of, uh, of um, even Munich to give that, to give like a co more cookie-like bite, like a cookie sort of flavor rather than a biscuit or, or a cracker kind of flavor. And so, you know, that, that, and that could, or maybe you put a mix of pills and um, pale. That'll just lighten up that kind of uh, sharpness and make a, 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 an IPA that's got a little bit of a softer malt character. And again, it's, it's just like, for me, you should think about every single thing. And don't have stuff in recipes that you don't know what's there for. And just really be deliberate about what you're doing. And the, mm -hmm. and the sort of corollary to that, taste ingredients all the time. If you know really good brewers, you know that they always do that. You know that they taste, 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 taste. Because you forget, and you have a model in your head of what caramel malt tastes like, crystal malt. Well, every manufacturer's is utterly, completely different. And, and one of the things we just did, I just did a presentation at our Chicago Beer Society um, a couple weeks ago, <coughs> and we laid out like 20 different crystal malts. So we had five, four or five different 40 Love Bonds and a bunch of 60s and a bunch of 80s. And we just laid them out. We made some teas with them and just had them in bowls. And people were amazed at like what the different flavors were because they'd never really given it that much thought before. So you got to really get your hands on that stuff and get it in your mouth. And then you'll build like that. We talked about like that model in your head of what all those ingredients taste like and how to make them, combine them, and put them in, um, just like chefs do. You know? mm -hmm. So, and you know, I, I agree with that totally. Andy, is there a, you know, do you have a, a set? you know, kind of malt that you like to use a lot, or do you really kind of jump around? Oh, I jump around all the time. I mean, depending upon the recipe that I'm doing, it always changes. Um, you know, if it's an English beer, Maris Otter is my primary malt. Uh, if it's an American beer, Pale Ale malt is what I use most of the time. Um, if it's a, a Belgian beer, I'll use a specific Pilsen that is from Belgium. Or you know, if it's a, a you know a German beer, then I'll do a Pilsner from Germany. Um, it just really depends on the style that I'm going for. I usually shoot for something that's quite specific from a guideline standpoint. So I will base the malt based upon what that region is and what is historically in that style, and then we'll tweak around there based upon what I do. Okay, and that that totally makes sense. And I hadn't even thought about how you know, malts from different vendors could be different. It just, I mean, I, it totally makes sense to me. I just never really thought of that. Yeah, I, uh, for the, the National uh, Homebrewers Conference this year in Philadelphia, um, my homebrew club, Trash, uh, did a lot of experiments, and we all did different base malts of Maris Otter from different maltsters for an ESB recipe. Um, I did uh, 
both Thomas Fawcett and Baird's, and a buddy of mine, Jack Smith, used crisp and uh, muttons. And we all kind of compared the, the recipes between them to figure out which, you know, Molster made the, the Maris Otter that we liked the most. And, you know, generally for the most part, it was either Crisp or Thomas Fawcett that was the consensus that people generally enjoyed more than the other other baseballs. But, yeah, everything can change based upon the Molster. Yeah, like I said, okay. it totally makes sense, but just never really thought of it that way. Yeah. So kind of back to your new book. Um, yes. So what... um. What audience are you aiming the book for? More of the novice, more of the, uh, you know, I've brewed a couple beers, I want to learn more, or more towards the, you know, the Andes of the world that, you know, brew like three times a week? You know, I would hope that there is uh, information in there for everybody. You know, one of the things I try very hard to do is not uh, dumb things down. We're going to have a little cat action here, if you don't mind. (laughs) There's no point in putting him down because he, he'll come right back up. But, uh, you know, I always try and have, no matter what I'm doing, I always try and have really people could start at the very beginning and have that basic information but not dumb down or talk down to them. And I, because of the way I pursue information, there's always stuff in there that uh, even very experienced people don't know. And, and so I... You know, as an author, you try and find ways to make your product appealing to as many people as possible. You know, one of the other things <coughs> that's different about this book compared to most of what else is out there is there's a real international focus to it. I've been lucky enough to get invited to travel to Italy and Denmark and Brazil and, our, and Australia, and so hanging out with homebrewers and talking to brewers in those areas, they do a lot of the same things we do, but there's definitely different um, ingredients. <laughs> at different points of view, <laughs> so I, a lot. I have recipes from Argentina, and I have recipes from Denmark, and I have a lot of different, you know, a real international perspective on there, uh, because you know, I mean, that's where the world is going. That's where brewing is going. Now we're, you know, we're seeing American craft beer bouncing back to Europe, uh, even to England, which is quite shocking because it's been such a conservative country for beer for the last thirty or forty years. But there's a big a small big move, you know, a small movement with a lot of excitement of kind of American style craft brewing people um, in in England and and, and other, elsewhere in Great Britain, and uh, you know it's just great to have that perspective. And, and we don't, we tend to think of styles as kind of dusty BJCP historically oriented guidelines, and in reality, you know, the, the things continue to evolve, and and there's sort of there are modern there is a modern sensibility about English ale and, and other that, and, and you wouldn't necessarily get it just out of BJCP guidelines. Uh, it's, it's important that art be living culture, and by living it means changing, right? So having that dynamic, um, that dynamism in those modern styles is really important, and, and uh, so that's, you know, one of the things I try to convey in this, in this book also. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, not a, a major part of the book, but one of the things I really liked was the, and you kind of did it in Radical Brewing, but you did an you know, amazing job of it in the new book, is the amazing shape-shifting beer recipe. Um, I, I think that's really, really a great way to show people, you know, how a recipe works, you know. And I obviously, since there's some extract in it, uh, it's aimed a little more towards, you know, the beginner, but... It's totally aimed at the beginner. Yeah. But why should it be? Why should you give be give? Why should you give a beginner 
one recipe. Because the whole mm-hmm. point of being a home brewer is to make whatever you want. So, so the idea of the recipe is basically you start here, take this malt, now pick some other malt, and then there's multiple choices. You want to make it light, you want to make it amber, you want to make it dark. Then you make another choice. You want to make it hoppy or not hoppy. You want to make it European, you want to make it American, you want to make it English hoppy. And then you, you, know, you pick your yeast, and at the end you have all these different choices. The process is the same. But you get to make exactly the beer you want on your first time through, rather than than um, having to be given. Oh well, it's an amber ale because you need the training wheels. And again, trying to not talk down to people, trying to give them the tools to become as sophisticated as they want to right away. You know, and feel like they're getting they're participating in the recipe process from the very beginning, so they're not reliant on always on other people's recipes at their start get familiar right away with making their own choices. And I think people nowadays uh, really want that more. You know, people are in it for self-expression. They want to bust out. I mean, you hear new homebrewers doing these crazy things because it's like, yeah, dude, I'm homebrewing now and I'm going to do like all this ridiculous stuff. And maybe they're getting ahead of themselves a little bit. But but I love that enthusiasm, you know, and it's great to have people that feel like they can do anything, you know, to have that confidence. It's awesome. So... Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And there's one or two uh, local uh, Mike uh, Nano Brewers, I guess you can call them, mm-hmm. you know, local to us that haven't really nailed down the base styles yet and tend to try you know, try to do the wild and crazy things first. And you know that kind of takes me back to what you mentioned about the you need to be able to taste to brew correctly. Yeah. Uh, it, it does seem like a lot of things now are so far out there that you know if you're not a master at tasting beer it just doesn't mean anything to you. you know, well I, and I'll tell you also when you get into the specialty ingredients the herbs and the spices and some of that kind of stuff that no matter how much experience you've had with them <coughs> there are always a lot of surprises and if you have a beer with two or three spices uh, you, you always have you have to brew multiple iterations on any given brewing system uh, to to really dial them in. It's very, very, very difficult to to go from from zero to create a great uh, flavored herb specialty beer recipe um, first time around. You know, there's some techniques, kind of under underdoing it and then adding spices later during the fermentation and things like that. Hi there, me again. So this is about the time that uh, Randy's computer uh, battery died. So he cut out, uh, tried to get back in, but for some reason, the audio stopped working. So like the true beer soldiers we are, we went on with the show and finished up, and I really think we finished up on a strong note. So keep listening. Uh, No more Randy. Uh, He wanted to make sure everyone knew that he was very thankful for being here and, you know, sorry for the computer problems, but uh, on with the show. Okay, so it looks like oh. Randy's computer has decided to stop functioning. Okay. So it is just us to finish out the show. Um, I apologize to everyone for the technical difficulties. Basically, we're mostly done anyway, so I just said I would apologize for the issues and say thank you to everyone for Randy. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, Randy. So I guess just kind of to you know to put an end to the show there, you know when you looked at these couple pages, uh, Andy, did you see anything in there that kind of you thought was interesting or you know you didn't know 
the thing I saw that I thought was interesting was some of the uh, the styles of hops and how they kind of all line up with each other. I mean, I really think the the whole book is, is really quite interesting, especially, you know, even if you're an advanced level home brewer, I think it's interesting because it just gives you a different concept of thinking behind brewing. So if you're beginning, I think it kind of takes the best of, you know, he mentioned how to brew, which is a very technical side of things, but you still mm -hmm. have to kind of piece things together. I think it kind of gives you those little nuggets that you need um, and the essential pieces of information to kind of formulate your own process and work with it. So to me, it's kind of like designing great beers, like he had mentioned, how to brew, and then, uh, you know, his book, Tasting, Tasting Beer, kind of all had a little baby and made a home brewing book and I think that's kind of what you get uh, from just you know the the 18 page look that I had yeah. um, I'm quite excited and it's definitely something that I'm gonna purchase when it comes out yeah just a couple of things that killed me in it is the like the one the one page I'm looking at is the IBUs per degree of gravity for hopping correctly I mean, that's that's pretty intense you know, so it actually says not just you know bitterness, but what bitterness of difference you know, what what bitterness of hops actually means. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm a sucker for learning new stuff, and it looks like even for the amount that I know, it's gonna give me a little more. So honestly, I think that's pretty. You know, with one person down, I think it's a pretty good place to end the show. Thanks for being on, Amanda. Thanks for uh, coming on, Andy. Cheers. Randy. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank Randy, you, Randy. Thank you very much for being on. Uh, it's an honor to talk with you. Like I said, you know, the books of yours that I've read, like Radical Brewing, have just really changed the way I look at a lot of things and gave me one of my favorite quotes about beer. It was, brewing beer is no harder than making lasagna. And it seems like that's insulting the way you brew beer, but it's really easy to make really terrible lasagna and really hard to make really good lasagna. And if you understand how everything works together, it you know, and you can follow the recipe correctly, it all kind of works. So, yeah. So on that, uh, thanks everybody, and uh, cheers. 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 Thanks for listening to the Craft Beer Showdown podcast. Make sure to check out craftbeeracademy.com for more information and to give feedback on today's show. Don't forget to watch the next episode live on Google Plus Hangouts or YouTube by going to craftbeeracademy.com slash live dash show.